And now uh, Dr. Peters is going to come back up, so I won't reintroduce her, but um, she's going to talk about uh, adverse events and a little more detail about how to manage those in the course of using tolapavir and bocepavir. Thank you very much. I think drug-drug interactions are dreadfully difficult. That's because I didn't grow up as an HIV doctor. But I admire you who did. So what I'm going to talk about is really the adverse events and practical issues about how to decrease, how to treat, and what to do. And I don't really need to go over this to remind you what's our standard in 2012. You need to know, A, they have virus, what's the load, what's the genotype, What's the histology, and are there any contraindications? And obviously, this will be very different in 2013, where we'll have one and maybe two drugs licensed, and 2014, where we may have interferon-free license. Then if you genotype one, you get triple therapy. You have to think of uh, response-guided therapy, stop if it didn't work. If you genotype two and three, then the DAAs don't work, so you have interferon ribavirin, and you have a pooled SVR of about 70 to 80%. So this is a 45-year-old woman with chronic hep C, and her risk factors were a short period of IDU at the age of 20. She's genotype 1B with a high viral load. She was depressed as a teenager and had a suicide attempt. She's had no significant depression since and doesn't feel depressed now, and she's not on any medication. She's 45. So what do you want to do? Inform the patient to get clearance from a psychiatrist. Start an SSRI and see her back in three months. Uh, tell her that she can't take interferon-based therapies or just keep on going and start therapy. You get to choose. Okay, so I think these are sort of the two extremes, right? Whether you're um, a chicken or a cowboy. But <laughs> I have to say, when it comes to psychiatric disease, I'm the chicken. Because I don't, unless you feel very comfortable assessing a lifetime psychiatric evaluation, some, I find it very helpful to have a psychiatrist reassure me that this patient's not at high risk or recommend what sort of antidepressant would best help them to get through their therapy. I agree that the current treatment modalities shouldn't be excluded in someone who had a, um, a suicide attempt three decades ago as a teenager, and if you felt comfortable moving, I think you'd have to give them her some sort of antidepressant. And I'll show you a little bit about, these are all the issues limiting triple therapy from inexperience of the doctor, psychiatric complications, anemia, neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, dermatologic events, weight loss, and thank God the drug-drug interactions have been reviewed. So if we go and ask the doctors, 
what in the general population, what's their discontinuation rate? They'll, the, this is data from an actual study where 44% of patients discontinued. And 40% the MD didn't give, you, give us any, didn't give the authors any explanation. A third discontinued for futility, 5% for comorbidities, and 5% for adherence. So in the real world, there's a, there are a lot of patients who stop and we don't quite know why. So what about psychiatric problems? Mild to moderate depression really is easily managed by many HCV treaters and there's little evidence to support preemptive therapy in all patients, but I'll show you some evidence. And the recommendation is that the treater should learn a few good drugs, but remember the drug-drug interactions with Brisepravir and uh, Tilaprevir, you could say we'll use the lowest dose possible, but you've just heard from Dr. Kaiser that if you use some, you'll drop down the exposure of the drug and therefore the patient won't be getting enough antidepressant. However, the more severe depressant may require assistance and somebody who's had a major uh, depressive episode and should perhaps delay therapy until they're stable. This is some data on preemptive treatment with a citalopram. And here the authors put the patients on placebo or drug, and you can see that many fewer patients had an antidepressive episode while on interferon. And interferon does tend to bring out the inner you, and if you are a depressed person, it may not be a good thing. So I am actually very much in favor of recommending to patients who go on interferon to work out who the inner you is and get treatment for that before they start therapy. So patient was treated with a DAA, interferon and ribavirin, baseline hemoglobin was 12. At about six weeks, she felt very tired and we were worried she was a bit depressed. So we did her labs and had her come in. Her hemoglobin was nine. Her platelets had dropped as had her white count and her ANC but her viral load at four weeks was undetectable. So she had a rapid virologic response. So now what would you do? She dropped her hemoglobin. She's six weeks out, she's had an RVR. You want to stop, her, stop all treatment, get a hematologist, start EPO, reduce ribavirin, reduce ribavirin and PEG, or reduce the DAA. Oh, making us work. So, 58% would reduce the ribavirin, a few would reduce ribavirin and PEG, and about 25% would start EPO. So let's look at the data on anemia, neutropenia, and thrombocytopenia. So if you look at Bisepravir-related adverse events in clinical trials, the most notable ones, as you know, are anemia, neutropenia, and dyskusia. And you can see anemia was much higher on triple therapy than PEG-RIBA alone, but we all know that anemia occurs with ribavirin. Neutropenia was a little higher, 
And in treatment experience patients, similarly, you saw a lot of anemia. If you look in the telaprevir, we actually see quite a significant amount of anemia, perhaps a little more than we saw in the phase three studies. At least in our practice, we do. Rash is extremely common, but rash also occurs with peg riba. And of course, anorectal symptoms very common with telaprevir. If you look at the anemia data from phase one and two and three placebo-controlled trials, you can see comparing to peg riba, which is in the gray, with um, you have much higher with telaprevir anemia, hemoglobin less than 10 and less than 8.5. If you look at the brisepravir data, once again, compared to peg riba, much more anemia, both mild to moderate and severe anemia. So both telaprevir and brisepravir cause anemia. They, what they did to manage it was different in both trials, but I think you have, that means you have choices. So in the telaprevir studies, ribavirin dose reduction occurred in a, over 20% on telaprevir arm compared to 9% on control, and similar, 21% in brisepravir compared to 13% on control. EPO wasn't permitted with telaprevir, but was very commonly used, both in triple and peg riber arms. Transfusions, this is something we almost never saw use, see with peg riber alone, was 2.1% in telaprevir and over the whole study period, so not just during the telaprevir dosing phase, 4.6% compared to brisepravir varied between the trials from 2 to 9%. And discontinuation of drug um, at any time, while on telaprevir was 1.9, at any time 0.9%, and for brisepravir, 0 to 3%. So I think anemia is a big issue, and it's a big issue with both drugs, and it can happen very rapidly. So with peg riba, you can study them every two weeks and then every month. With triple therapy, you really need to monitor them very closely. So here are post hoc analysis, so reworking of the data by Mark Zulkowski, looking at sustained virologic response by the minimum ribavirin dose. And you can see if they never reduced with telaprevir versus placebo in gray. So if they never reduced or they reduced, they have a very similar uh, SVR in treatment-naive patients and a very similar SVR in relapses. However, if you further worked the data, remember it's post hoc, so it wasn't evaluated this way initially, if you compare ribavirin dose reduction in the first 12 weeks to ribavirin dose reduction after that, you can see that numerically there appears to be a lower SVR if you dose reduce ribavirin in the first month or first 12 weeks compared to later. 
And remember, with peg riber alone, it makes a huge difference if you dose reduce in the first 12 weeks. And for previously treated patient, appears to have the maximum effect in the first four weeks. Then if you look at um, SVR according to permanent ribavirin discontinuation, so if the, the subject is RNA uh, undetectable and you didn't discontinue, they had a 90% SVR with triple therapy, whereas if you discontinued in the first four weeks, they had a 49%. Whereas if they were detectable, whether you continued or discontinued, it didn't take any, make any difference. Now, the problem is we're talking post-hoc analysis and small numbers, but suggesting that ribavirin dose is important. This is another way of looking at it, whether you have EPO or you have ribavirin doesn't make any difference, and this is Perseprevir data because EPO wasn't permitted in telaprevir. And you can see whether you did dose reduction or EPO, they have the same uh, efficacy endpoint. So you can do either. But of course, if you're giving the patient EPO, and you're anything like our place, it might take a couple of weeks to get the EPO. So you need to do something in the meantime because the insurance company won't give you EPO unless A, you've proved it's dropped, B, you have the HCV RNA, C, you have their ferritin and iron studies. So you might want to preemptively get those data so you can get approval. What about neutropenia? Well, it's very common and attributed to PEG interferon bone marrow suppressive effects. We know that there's really no risk of infection, even when the ANC is under 500, from a few studies. However, the people who got into trouble with infection were the cirrhotics, and they're nice studies from Hufnagel and his group. And you can manage neutropenia with GCSF, but only give it when the ANC is less than 500 and you can give it often without any dose reduction. What about thrombocytopenia? Most people say there's not really a significant concern until the platelet count drops below 30, and you manage it with a dose reduction of PEG interferon dose, and you can consider L-thrombobag. I don't know why they left the H out of that, but it trips my tongue every time. You have to stop treatment if your platelet count, if the patient's platelet count goes under 20. But like with anemia, this can be very rapid, and you remember that with in pegylated interferon, you can have um, complete loss of platelets with uh, ITP-like syndrome in your platelets of three or 5,000. So here's the one study from John McCutcheson in the treatment with l bag, and on the top it looks at the mean platelet count with increasing doses of drug. And basically you can see the higher the dose, the higher the platelet count goes up. Perhaps the bottom is a better one. This didn't come out very well, and I apologize, but this is placebo, really um, the number of patients who could complete 12 weeks of interferon therapy whose platelets dropped. 
You see, once your platelets drop precipitously under 30, you, they're going to stop treatment, whereas if they'd gotten L-thrombopag, you can increase up to 65 or rescue two-thirds of patients. Now, you have to send the patient to a hematologist to monitor and manage their L-thrombopag, so you really need to line up your hematologist beforehand so they're mentally prepared to do it. So the patient's now at week seven of triple therapy with telaprevir, and she reports by phone that she's just developed an itchy rash, and she denies fever chills or oral mucosal involvement. So what do you want to do? Stop treatment, ask them to come in, send a photo on her iPhone, tell her not to worry, it's common, or call your lawyer. Exactly, you've got to see the rash. Even the iPhone can't solve this one. So what are the dermatologic events? You know that interferon can give a dermatitis. It can cause local reaction around the site of injection. It can, even though it's used, has been used in the past for psoriasis, it actually can exacerbate psoriasis. Ribavirin can cause a drug in eruption, and you may not be able to tell the difference. And telaprevir can cause eczematous rash, but also eosinophilic systemic symptoms. So the rash data for telaprevir, you can see it's much higher in telaprevir than pegriborams, though the majority of the rashes are mild. They're typically pruritic and eczematous. They typically involve less than a third of the body surface area. And remember, the body surface area is 999, 18 front and back each, and 18 for each leg. Approximately half the rashes start in the first four weeks, which means half of them don't. So if someone gets a rash at week seven, eight, nine, that can also be telaprevir. But it can occur at any time. And remember, you can stop treatment after eight weeks with very little loss of benefit. So mild is just a few isolated sites. Moderate is less than 50%. Severe is greater than 50%, and Panicsville is mucosal membrane ulceration, target lesions, and epidermal detachment. Ooh, I didn't do that. And these ones, if the patient does have um, a generalized bullish eruption, drug rash with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms, Stevens-Johnson, toxic epidermic necrolysis, or uh, generalized eczematous pustulosis, erythema multiforme, that is an emergency. The patient has to be admitted, and that's the only time you need a dermatologic urgent consult. So here are the various rashes. I think you're all familiar. Mild is conservative, moderate, without mucosal involvement. Stop the telaprevir, continue peg riba, and if you think it's a ribavirin rash, which is never is more uh, maculopapular, just hold the drug and restart at the lowest dose. If it's severe, you must stop treatment and admit the patient. What about anal rectal disorders? I said this morning it's really a major issue with a lot of patients, and you have to ask the patient. And it's significant 
the nearly at least a quarter of patients in the drug trials complained of this, although very, very few had severe involvement and very few discontinued therapy. We don't know the mechanism. Uh, Dr. Wiles said that it was higher if the patient wasn't really taking a high enough fat diet before their telaprevir, so perhaps it was the effect of the telaprevir or whatever was with the uh, pill causing anorectal irritation. So you can use local therapy with witch hazel, you can use corticosteroids, you can use local anesthetics, you can use antihistamines. I think it's important for the patients to know they can try one and move on to others or do a combination, that they feel like there isn't just one answer, there are a lot of things that can be helping. So the last, the we often don't think about is weight loss. And weight loss occurs uh, in a significant number of patients on pegylated interferon. Unfortunately, usually only in those who don't need it. And losing more than 10% of body weight is considered serious. It's more common in those patients with HIV, but I've seen it in patients with HCV monoinfection, especially in thin women. And the primary management is caloric, caloric supplementation because interferon causes anorexia. So the patient should be taking milkshakes, boosts, Ensure, and if they take them with their fat, they can take them before their interferon. I think the hardest dose to take is the morning dose when you don't quite feel like your bowl of um, ice cream. And sometimes, this drug, ritazepam, is often affected in, effective in weight gain. So I want to finish with just showing you some real-world data. And this is data, I'll go to this slide first, where, from the CUPIC trial, where if you look at all the clinical trials of telaprevir in green, baseprevir in blue, and pegriba in gray, you can see that the... Um, patients with serious adverse events, that's severe adverse events requiring hospitalization, these patients are around 9 to 12%. But this is a French real-world study where they collected data from a large number of sites around France. They're all cirrhotics, F3 and a bit and 4, and you can see that patients with serious, they're all treatment experience, patients with serious adverse events were 49% for telaprevir and 38% for baseprevir. Very different from what we saw in the uh, phase three studies. And if we can go back one, here you can see the preliminary safety findings and they're continuing to update these data. That 26% of patients on telaprevir stopped, for, uh, over half of them due to SAEs, and similar numbers on baseprevir. Death occurred in 2% telaprevir patients, 1.3% of baseprevir. Serious infections, very unusual, except if a patient has decompensated cirrhosis. And these patients were compensated occurred in quite a significant number of patients, asthenia, rash, 
was more common, pruritus, and hepatic decompensation. Remember, these were all cirrhotic patients. So just under 5% of patients decompensated. So just to make the point that when we read the um, package inserts, sometimes the side effects are much more common than uh, reported. So you have to be familiar, A, with the side effect, and B, have a plan for the management. So the management of hepatitis C, unfortunately, has become more complex, not less complex, in 2012. Just like we promised three years ago, we promised that in three years it'll be simpler. Perhaps not. I mean, if, if we literally have to have a PharmD in every hepatitis C clinic, that's going to be a lot more complicated. The specific management techniques are evolving and how best to recognize, monitor, and treat patients both for safety and efficacy. I think we've got the um, response-guided therapy so we can do that. I think we can put up our stopping rules on the wall so we can do that. It's a little harder with the safety. I would say that anemia and is really the major issue that can occur without warning. So we need to be very vigilant in following it. And the next generation may be easier to manage of DAAs. Thank you very much. Okay, stay there, Marion. I've got okay. some questions for you. As long as they're not about DAA, Doug, Doug interactions. Oh, it's all right. With Jennifer's here. She stepped out. I don't oh, know. Oh, we'll, we'll bring we'll, her back. We'll keep that one for last. So um, coming back to management of anemia, there are kind of two related questions here. So the first is just what is your protocol for ribavirin dose reduction at what hemoglobin level? How much do you reduce? How do you follow it? Kind of that type of thing. So if a patient drops their hemoglobin to between 8.5 and, and 10, I usually go down to 600 if they be drop below a hemoglobin of eight and a half, I usually either hold it for a, a few days or drop down to 200. Depends where they started. If you have someone who started it with a hemoglobin of 15 and they came down to 11 and can't walk upstairs, that's an issue. So you need to get the symptomatology too. Uh, I don't think you need to use EPO for every patient. Cirrhotics tend to need EPO, and you need to in, uh, institute it fairly early, when, but they can drop very precipitously. But we would drop by half if their uh, hemoglobin goes down under eight, and then slowly increase as needed. And with time, you can bring the uh, ribavirin levels back. So I think that you pretty much covered this. This question was just, would you recommend EPO before ribavirin dose reduction in the first 12 weeks? Uh, if you could get it, you could do it. But in my experience, uh, you know, my three letters to the, to the insurance company, then you call the medical director, you know, time has passed. I find it very difficult to get EPO approved. Um, under 72 hours. We ha have new pharmaceutical arrangements and hopefully we can improve on that, but we always end up
dropping ribavirin? And I don't know how you do in San Diego. We drop, um, even in co-infected patients, we drop ribavirin first, generally. Um, again, we look at the, the tempo of the reduction as well as just the absolute level. Um, but yeah, we're, we're pretty routinely just dose reducing first, and then if we need to, adding EPO to prevent having to go kind of below 600 or having to stop. But we've also kind of learned our lesson the, the hard way. If, if somebody really drops fast, um, dose reducing may not be enough. You may have to stop for about a week and kind of let their bone marrow recover, because if you continue even at a dose reduced, you know, that hemoglobin keeps going down. We've had to transfuse some people. So um, I do think what you said about holding, if it's been a rapid decrease for a week or four or five days or something, and then reinstituting at a lower level is, is something to consider if they're really dropping fast. So you end up doing a lot of CBCs, yeah. many more than you used to do with just peg rib. Yeah. So here's one about Nupagen that I've actually not heard before. Our hematologists are concerned with the use of Nupagen because of it, its increased risk, of, because of the increased risk of acute leukemia with this down the road. Have you seen this, and do you have a response? I have not seen this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm in a uh, liver transplant team. We throw around GCSF yeah. quite a lot. Um, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know of it as a side effect. Is Dr. Kaiser here? Yeah. Do you know it's a side effect? Can you answer at the mic? Sorry. There's always somebody who knows more than me on everything. It's yes. Not, it's not me. This is news to me too, so I'll have to go look this up. Does yeah. anyone have data? I got the person who asked the question. How frequent is it? Well, I, I haven't seen it, and if you don't use GCSF, you won't be treating many patients. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, Marion clearly pointed out, I mean, you really probably, the risk is probably minimal from neutropenia itself for infections, and, you know, I think you can go to 500 before you need to use it. Um, but, yeah, we haven't thought twice if we felt we needed it and could get it. We'll look it up for the yeah. next talk. And then... Since Dr. Kaiser's back, Marion, you'll get the first step at this. But, uh, yeah, come any, back to the microphone, <laughs> Dr. Kaiser. Any known uh, drug interactions between HCVPIs and um, methadone or buprenorphine? Oh, that has been studied. Yeah. And she'll tell you about it. <laughs> um, yes, there are uh, abstracts for both of those. And so with telaprogram and methadone, there is a reduction in total methadone levels, but that is misleading because the free fraction of methadone is actually unchanged, and that's the part of the drug responsible for uh, the effect. So you don't need to adjust methadone with telaprevir. And with bosepravir, there is also no interaction with methadone. Um, and there is an interaction with buprenorphine, but they are not considering it clinically significant. So I think methadone and buprenorphine are um, gonna be fine with telaprevir and bosepravir. And you should, anytime you start a new antiviral agent, you need to be aware that it could affect the uh, methadone and buprenorphine and just monitor for symptoms, but based on the healthy volunteer drug drug, well, I guess they're not healthy volunteers. They are methadone or buprenorphine maintained patients, <laughs> persons, persons maintained. The persons maintained on methadone and buprenorphine uh, studies, um, they didn't have hep C, but they didn't appear to be a drug interaction that we have to worry about. Perfect, that's all the questions. Thank you. Great. Yeah, you stay here. Question.